The Daily 202 Podcast is brought to you by Indeed.com. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed, the number one job site in the world, is here to help. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Daily 202. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, September 24th. In today's news, a Kentucky grand jury declines to file homicide charges in the death of Breonna Taylor. President Trump refuses to commit to the peaceful transfer of power, and the coronavirus is mutating. But first, the big idea. A huge, brutalist entrance gate, topped with the red national flag of China, stands before archetypical government buildings. There's no sign identifying the complex, only an inscription bearing a quote from Mao. But the 45-foot-high walls and guard towers indicate that this massive compound is not just another bureaucratic outpost in western China, where authorities have been waging a sweeping campaign of repression against the mostly Muslim Uyghur minority— It is a new detention camp spanning some 60 acres, opened as recently as January, with 13 five-story residential buildings it can accommodate more than 10,000 people. The Kashgar site is among dozens of prison-like detention centers that Chinese authorities have built across the Xinjiang region, despite Beijing's claims that it's winding down its internationally denounced efforts to, quote, re-educate the Uyghur population after deeming the campaign a success. A recent visit to the region by our former Beijing bureau chief, Anna Fifield, bolstered by satellite imagery and other reporting, reveals how international pressure and outrage have done little to slow the communist regime's crackdown, which appears to be entering an ominous new phase. The story I'm about to share only posted after Anna left China for New Zealand. The regime is refusing to accredit any Washington Post reporter, so for the first time in decades, we don't have any full-time correspondents in mainland China right now. For the past year, the Chinese have said that almost all the people in its, quote, vocational training program in Xinjiang, aimed at, quote, de-radicalizing the country's mostly Muslim population, has, quote, graduated and been released into the community. What our reporter saw with her own eyes shows something very different. This new compound, one of at least 60 facilities either built from scratch or expanded over the past year, has floodlights and five layers of tall barbed wire fences in addition to the towering walls. The satellite pictures reveal a tunnel for sending detainees from a processing center into the facility and a large courtyard like those seen in other camps where detainees have been forced to pledge allegiance to the Chinese flag. Some prison-style facilities like the one outside Kashgar are new, Other existing sites have been expanded with higher security areas. New buildings added to Xinjiang's largest camp in Dabancheng near Umqui last year stretched almost a mile in length. Some 14 facilities are being built across Xinjiang, according to the satellite images. When Anna tried to visit the detention center half an hour's drive south of Kashgar earlier this month, her vehicle was quickly surrounded by at least eight cars that had previously been tailing her at some distance. The site was clearly sensitive to the regime. When she headed toward another camp, a new camp, in Okto, which is also south of Kashgar, she was stopped repeatedly. She was made to register her passport and then drive behind police cars, 
only to be turned around at a county border. Conversely, when Anna visited several compounds that previously held Uyghurs, authorities didn't bother much with trying to obstruct her and some Europeans who were accompanying her. Those facilities appeared empty. Windows swung open at one former vocational training camp. Bunk beds lay in piles in the yard at another. Litter rolled past ping-pong tables and over lonely soccer fields. Many Uyghurs and people of other ethnic minority groups who have been sent to these camps have subsequently disappeared into prisons. Maila Yakufu, a Mandarin-speaking insurance company worker, was released this month after two years and three months of detention without trial. She had previously been put into one of these vocational training internment camps for 10 months. When the scale of the human rights abuses in Xinjiang really came to light in 2017 and 2018, China categorically denied their existence at all. But as chilling testimony and satellite images made it clear, incontrovertible, that this was what was going on, the United Nations estimated that more than one million people have been incarcerated. Beijing then responded that this was a necessary program to deal with terrorism. Now, the region was conquered during the Qing Dynasty back in the 1700s, and it was given a name meaning New Frontier in Chinese. It's home to not just the Uyghurs, but other Turkic Muslims whose culture and language are distinct from China's dominant Han people. For more than two centuries, the locals have protested, sometimes violently, against Chinese repression. In recent years, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, Beijing has used these protests as a pretext to carry out what many human rights advocates have labeled cultural genocide. Muslims who have been interned in the camps have described being forced to eat pork and drink alcohol, both of which are forbidden by their faith. They've been forced to renounce their religion altogether and to pledge allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. They also undergo hours every day of what they describe as systematic brainwashing. Women are forcibly sterilized, and the Uyghur birth rate has plummeted. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has called China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims the stain of the century, and the Trump administration is reportedly weighing a declaration of China's actions as genocide. The old city of Kashgar, once an atmospheric oasis on the Silk Road, has been turned into a theme park for Han Chinese tourists, complete with light displays featuring Mandarin Chinese characters and kitschy settings that are perfect for selfies. But Anna says that closer observation reveals none of the men in the Muslim city have beards anymore. None of the women wear the hijab. And the Muslim men chopping fruit and meat in the bazaar use knives that are chained to their stalls. And there are no more working mosques. They've all been turned into cafes or museums or closed entirely. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, a Kentucky grand jury determined yesterday that two officers involved in the death of Breonna Taylor were justified in firing their weapons into her apartment, while another was charged with recklessly firing rounds into a neighboring unit. Hours after the announcement, Louisville police reported that two officers had been shot downtown around 8.30 p.m. as massive protests were underway. They are in stable condition with non-life-threatening injuries, and a suspect is in custody. After a four-month investigation into Taylor's death, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a Republican and former top aide to Mitch McConnell, made the announcement at a news conference that he says marks the end of the state's formal investigation into a death that has galvanized the national Black Lives Matter movement. 
Cameron said the two officers who shot Taylor while serving a warrant at her apartment after midnight were justified in firing at the 26-year-old emergency room technician because her boyfriend fired at them first after they used a battering ram to break into the unit. Cameron said none of the six homicide charges under Kentucky law apply to Taylor's death because the officers acted in self-defense. He said a judge had signed off on a no-knock warrant for police to enter the apartment, but police and a witness told authorities that officers did indeed announce themselves before entering. Brett Hankison, who was fired from the force in June, was charged with three counts of first-degree wanton endangerment for allegedly firing multiple rounds that tore into a neighboring apartment. A judge set his bail at $15,000. He was booked and released from jail after posting bond. The new announcement from Cameron drew criticism from Taylor's family, their attorney, and several celebrities and activists, including people like NBA star LeBron James. They said that Cameron and the jury disregarded the life of an innocent black woman. They said the decision left them once again questioning the fairness of the U.S. justice system. Kevin Williams, Tim Craig, and Marisa Iadi report from the ground that hundreds of protesters in downtown Louisville clashed with police as armored vehicles and the National Guard tried to clear the streets. Demonstrations were also held around the country, including Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Washington, and Philadelphia. From coast to coast, protesters shouted, Say her name, Breonna Taylor. Number two. President Trump refused during a news conference last night to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election in November, asserting that if he does not win, it will be because of fraudulent mail-in voting and not because more Americans voted against him. His latest comments came after he has spent months making unsubstantiated claims that voting by mail is corrupt and will lead to a rigged election. In fact, data makes clear that states that have embraced universal mail voting have documented tiny rates of possible ballot fraud. Earlier in the day, Trump also sought to sound out in election results by predicting that deciding the winner of the election will ultimately go to the Supreme Court. He said that is why it is so urgent that a nominee to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg be seated before the election. Trump is also pushing his own advisors to deliver some health care wins in the final weeks of this campaign, leading to a frenzied rollout of proposals as polls show the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and health care policy generally are two of his biggest vulnerabilities for re-election. Trump is scheduled to deliver a speech later today in Charlotte, broadly outlining how he would approach health in a second term though the speech is likely to be light on details. Instead, he'll tout his administration's efforts to lower drug prices, address surprise medical bills, and improve health care price transparency. Josh Dossi and Yasmin Abu Talib report that the president is expected to mostly avoid speaking about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, something he's long promised to do, but it's a position that's now become unpopular with voters. Advisors also expect Trump to sign an executive order at the event, promising to protect people with pre-existing conditions though the administration has not detailed how this objective could be achieved without the safeguards in Barack Obama's signature 2010 law, which Trump is in court trying to discard. Other outside experts have said the order would amount to little more than a public relations ploy. Number three, scientists in Houston have released a study of more than 5,000 genetic sequences of the coronavirus that reveals the virus's continual accumulation of mutations, one of which may have made it more contagious. The new report doesn't find that these mutations have made the virus deadlier or changed clinical outcomes, and all viruses accumulate genetic mutations. But the virus has had abundant opportunities to change, potentially with troublesome consequences, according to the study's lead author, James Musser from Houston Methodist Hospital. 
David Morins, a virologist at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, reviewed the new study and told my colleague Joel Achenbach that these new findings point to the strong possibility that the virus, as it has moved through the population, has become more transmissible, and that will make it harder to control. Finally, in an update to the story I closed with yesterday, Alaska mining executive Tom Collier resigned after being caught on tape boasting about his influence over the White House and elected officials from Washington to Juneau. Collier and Ronald Thiessen, the CEO of the Canadian parent company, Northern Dynasty Minerals, were recorded separately suggesting that Republican politicians would not ultimately block Pebble Mine, even though some are publicly raising concerns about its environmental impact. Thiessen, who's Collier's boss, offered an apology but did not step down from his post. Chris Wood, the president of the conservation group Trout Unlimited, told Juliet Eilperin, who broke this story, that Collier is the fall guy for a project that is fundamentally flawed and has essentially been, as he put it, a flim-flam operation from the very beginning. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, September 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.